Okay, I think uh, maybe we can start. Um, welcome, everybody. Thank you for coming uh, to this uh, last in a series of events to mark the uh, publication of The Storyteller, a collection of short pieces by Walter Benjamin that uh, Esther, Sam, who is not here today, and myself edited and translated. Uh, and I am delighted to welcome today uh, three uh, guests. Um, first, we have um, Sarah Sali. I hope I'm pronouncing yes, that yeah, correctly. Yeah, yeah, that's great. From the University of Toronto, from the English department, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. Uh, and Sarah was invited by uh, Sam in particular because he, as I understand it, saw you speak in Ramallah last year at a, a Benjamin seminar conference thing, which uh, I'm sure some of you attended or may have heard about, which was apparently very interesting. Uh, we have, uh, of course, uh, Professor Howard Kegel from the Center for Research in Modern European Philosophy at Kingston University, uh, whose books on Benjamin, amongst other things, I'm sure many of you are familiar with. Uh, and there will be, following their two presentations, a response by Matthew Charles from Westminster University. Matt, you are a lecturer in English and Cultural Studies, is that right? Uh, and Matt has done terrific work on Benjamin uh, and pedagogy, which seemed very apropos. So here we are. Um, Esther, I'm sure, needs no introduction. Esther Leslie, professor here at Birkbeck, and myself, my name is uh, Sebastian. Uh, and uh, yes, uh, so just before we hear the two presentations and response, to be followed hopefully by Q&A, &A, uh, Esther has prepared a few uh, words about the book and its themes and motivations. Thank you, Sebastian. And sorry for people who can't find seats. I don't know if you can squeeze at the back or maybe in, in this corner at the side here a bit more comfortable. <laughs> Just find a place where you're the least uncomfortable. So, thank you. Welcome, everyone, to Walter Benjamin's Fiction and Form. And this event is one of a number designed to celebrate the launch of Walter Benjamin, Tales Out of Loneliness, an edition of 42 pieces of writing by Benjamin. Mainly his fiction, creative writing pieces, and some puzzles, um, jokes, sketches. There's also a smattering of reviews by him, too, in the volume, and mainly those were ones that had not been translated before. Sebastian, Sam Dolbert and I gathered together the bits and pieces of Benjamin's literary work, finding them within the now becoming redundant Gesammelte um, Schriften, the, the first version of the collected works of Benjamin, scattered across different volumes. Now some of those um, were in the main body of those different volumes, some of them um, were just scraps in the kind of apparat or back pages of the different volumes. Some of the pieces of fiction had been translated before. Some had been largely ignored. We rescued what we thought needed rescuing and put it into English. We also put it into contexts, dividing the book into three themes to which the stories and the included reviews were to speak. The themes were dreams, travel and play very porous categories, what dreaming is not a kind of play or a journey of sorts, and what 
play, it's not a travelling <coughs> one takes Benjamin's ideas of experience, erfahrung, seriously, erfahren and erfahren, travel and experience. And these terms, dream, travel and play, extended themselves again, stretching into others. The dream becomes a nightmare, or it's a fantasy, or it's insanity. Travel can take you to distant places, to the unknown or the remote, or it can be the exploration, which Benjamin loved, of his own doorstep, what he calls in his review of Franz Hessel in the book, Backdoor Berlin. The strangeness beneath your feet. And play twisted also in the volume in other ways, through the license of the German language into the notion of gambling, into the capacity to lose it all with one throw of the dice or spin of the wheel. And it's there, most obviously, that the intertwinements of capitalism and myth appear, which I think are really uh, enduring and fascinating aspects of Benjamin's analysis. The question today is that of fiction and form. And Benjamin is promiscuous in this volume in relation to form. He writes bald prose, comic verse, expressionist sketches, symbolist reveries, psychological thrillers, and yet perhaps none of those really fit to describe the work. In a review that we translated but that was excluded in the end, uh, a review of um, uh, the review was titled Subterranean Passageway in the Tiergarten Street. Benjamin notes the following of watercolours by Rolf von Herschelmann in an exhibition. The magic of these pages is perhaps this. On them, locality and fantasy come together out of free love without letting themselves be wed by the composition. Are locality and fantasy so freely entwined in Benjamin's writings without being hampered by any rigidities of construction, any commitment to any form, any wish to work and rework what is there? But something still holds the pieces together, although perhaps that something is assumed by me. It's an intensely personal involvement in all of the written scenes, whether he describes something that one suspects has happened to him or something that was told to him by someone else. Everything does seem to stem from experience, from a knowing that's passed on mouth to mouth or created in dreams or found lurking in the streets. I want to finish by illustrating this notion, quoting from another review that we translated for the book but did not include, titled In Praise of the Doll critical scoffs at Max von Bern's dolls and puppet shows, which was published in the Literarische Welt in June 1930. The review is harsh. It's one of those ones where Benjamin is just lashing out and being really nasty, a product of disappointment or jealousy. But then Benjamin slips into another mode, and he writes, Right after this dubious exegesis of Kleist, however, one has the pleasure of stumbling upon the changeable dolls or metamorphoses. Byrne names as their inventor Franz Gnasius. They played a leading role in the puppet theatre of Schwiegeling, certainly one of the greatest puppet playhouses of all times. 
These days, it seems to have become difficult to find out anything about this theatre, and for this reason I will communicate what I recall of the performance by Schwiegerling's Puppet Theatre in Bern in 1918. This puppet theatre was actually more of a magician's shack. There was only one production on each evening. Beforehand, however, his artistic dolls were put on show. I can still clearly visualise two scenes. Casper enters, dancing with a beautiful lady. Suddenly, just when the music is at its sweetest, the lady collapses, transforms into a balloon, and carries Castellet, who clasps it tightly out of love, off into the sky. For a moment, the stage remains quite empty, then Castellet tumbles down with a terrible crash. The other scene was sad. A girl who looks like an enchanted princess plays a sad melody on a hurdy-gurdy. All of a sudden, the hurdy-gurdy caves in. Twelve sugar, tiny doves fly out. But the princess sinks silently to the ground with her arms raised. And as I'm writing this, another memory from those days comes back to me. A tall clown stands on the stage, bows, begins to dance. During the dance, he shakes a little dwarf clown from his sleeve. He's dressed in the same red-yellow floral costume as he is, and with every twelfth step of the waltz, he produces another, until finally twelve identical dwarf or baby clowns dance in a circle around him. So, Benny Moon describes a play, a puppet show, but in a way it's like a dream, a moment experienced by a student in Switzerland, exiled from his roaring homeland. Benjamin writes out of experience and forms his experience into magical, tiny forms, strange wonders of analysis and emotion, dubious sometimes in the old and in the modern sense, both enigmatic and off-beam, and inconclusive, yet with emphatic, often downbeat or deflating conclusions, like the shock of waking that must be endured until the dreams flood in again. So let me hand over and hear more from our guests. I suppose I'll stand. So um, I'm definitely the, the dilettante here, <laughs> just to let you know. I, I work on lots of other things other than Benjamin, but I, uh, and I have a, an odd relationship to Benjamin, which I'll tell you about. And if I'm talking about form, I suppose I'm talking about how Benjamin has deformed me um, in the reading and uh, writing about him. So first let me tell you the story of this paper. Um, I started rewriting it at the beginning of this month when I was on the train to Nevers in France. I had decided to visit Vernuche, where, as you may know, Walter Benjamin was interned from September to November 1939. During the spring and summer, I had visited the clay exhibition at the Centre Georges Pompidou in Paris, where um, they had reunited for the first time Benjamin's two clays, Angelus Novus, and uh, introducing the miracle. This was the first time since he'd packed them up just before fleeing from that, or attempting to flee from France. I had read in the reading room where he had stayed too long. I stared at PDFs in the Benjamin archives in Berlin. They wouldn't let me touch them. They <laughs> didn't let you touch them. I photographed the monument and the cemetery at Port Vaux. And now here I was, en route to uh, Nevers, rewriting the paper about Benjamin's essay, The Storyteller, which I gave last December in Ramallah, as Sebastian told you. So I began that paper in Ramallah by citing Roland Barthes, who says in the neutral that he is going to take the word neutral for a series of walks 
along a network of readings rather than along a grid of words. Instead of explicating or crystallizing, he will baffle the paradigm, the paradigm for him being the opposition of two terms from which one actualizes one of them to produce meaning. So it sounds a bit like dialectic. In Ramallah, I said I was taking Benjamin for a walk through a network of readings of his storyteller and Nikolai Leskov's short story, The Sealed Angel. And no doubt I ambled about vaguely enough. Uh, once I was in Vernouche, it unraveled even more. I was looking for the chateau where Benjamin was detained with 288 other prisoners who had been summoned to the Stade de Colombe in Paris and then transported by bus, train and on foot. Benjamin's biographers note that the two-hour walk from Nouvelle to Vernouche taxed Benjamin's heart to the limit and he collapsed on the way. The receptionist at the empty hotel hadn't heard of Benjamin, but she googled, found this local newspaper article which she printed out for me as well as the address of the chateau where he'd been kept. She wrote the address on a post-it note, stuck it on the article, and I promptly lost it. But before I lost it, I set off uh, straight off, although it was eight and getting dark, and I found Neuf Rue de Colette, stood in front of the place where the chateau had apparently been. It was now an ordinary-looking house with a few cars. I was going to use images, by the way. I took photos, but I thought it was tacky, so you just have to imagine it. There are a few cars parked outside, there was no sign of a chateau, no plaque, no, no trace of any uh, past that I could see, apart from the past past. But I was a bit moved, as I had been in the reading room, as I was very much moved in front of the clays, and for some reason, which I might talk about, less so in Paul Bou itself. The next morning, the hotel owner's elderly father was summoned to chat with me. He said he was a boy during the war, he said he remembered the Germans. No one knew about the prisoners. It was another chateau, he thought, the one on the other side of the motorway. They held prisoners, but really nobody knew. They never saw any prisoners. Several people had been here before me inquiring about this philosopher. Maybe five people in the last 10 years, he said. He's even mildly annoyed by all this. So I set out again, armed with this, because it's got, I don't know if you can see, it's got a photo of the chateau there. Um, uh, and I went across the motorway, which is actually quite difficult. It's French drivers not really here. Yeah possessed by a, an ambling professor uh, and it wasn't that chateau on the other side of the motorway it wasn't the one just below the hotel where the hotel and thought it, uh, it may have been and I eventually found this this one on the other side of the main road quite close to the place where I've been and paid false homage the night before and in fact I'd stood in front of this building and uh, for some reason had not recognized it Maybe this is not a very interesting story, so let me get to what I think might be the point, which is that as I was traipsing around, scrutinising the various chateaux of Vernouche, I had not thought there were so many, I cursed Walter Benjamin, yes I did, and I thought of all the other things that I could have been doing. I could have visited my sister, I could have volunteered in Calais, I could have stayed at home. So I wondered what I was doing, following in Benjamin's footsteps, staring at his paintings, reading in the reading room where he had read, looking at the bay he had looked at before he died, and now the chateau where he slept in a stairwell. I was looking at the stairwell. He trespassed in, and uh, he organised philosophy seminars to obtain the armband that would earn him an exeat to the cinema in Nevers. Nothing was clear to me except this, that I was not taking Walter Benjamin for a walk. He, it was the other way round. I follow Benjamin, je suis Benjamin, in both the Derridean and the rather uh, troubling Charlie senses of the phrase. I am following after him sur les traces de, and I remembered at this point the end of Canto 23 of Dante's Inferno, where Virgil gets annoyed with the hypocrites and stalks off, and uh, Dante says, so I left these burdened souls following the prince of the dear feet. 
Benjamin is an unlikely Virgil, and I am certainly no Dante, but I do seem to be following in his prints, his footsteps, dear or not, les traces in French, as you know, traces for reasons that may not be entirely reasonable. In the Arcades Project, Benjamin says that to live is to leave traces. These traces are emphasized in rooms, interior spaces. The storyteller also leaves traces on her story like the prints of a potter on the pot because the storyteller is an artisan who has crafted something that's not exhausted in a single telling but will be told repeatedly even as the storyteller herself burns up her whole life in the narration of her story. It's long fallen out of fashion to look for the handprints of the storyteller on the metaphorical pot. We tend to be more concerned with, for example, form and narrative, although we could say maybe that these are the handprints. And yet the title of Benjamin's essay draws our attention to the teller of the tale. He could have called it the story. Since he's talking about oral narratives, particularly those that are recounted in the milieu of work, it seems clear enough that for him, the tale and the teller can't be separated. So this makes me less ashamed to admit that I've been concerned at least as much with Benjamin, the storyteller, as with Benjamin's stories, the stories he told about 19th century Paris, Baudelaire, and so on, and now the tales that are gathered in this wonderful collection. I don't remember exactly how this began for me. It was several years ago. I was trying to write about my father, who it turned out had published a series of articles in Arabic about Hannah Arendt, and in the 90s this was still fairly unusual, I believe. So I couldn't, it proved impossible to write about my father in a straightforward way, and instead I knocked the story sideways and wrote a book, unpublished and no doubt unpublishable, about someone like my father, who reads someone like Walter Benjamin, transformed into a Moroccan Jew, who grows up in newly colonized, turn of the century French Casablanca, where there are arcades and grands magasins, as well as brand new sewage systems and red light districts and swimming pools and promenades for the colon. That is the true story of the semi-true story I wrote, and it's the reason Benjamin was taking me for a walk around France this spring and summer. After the fact, it has to be said, um, I've been given a grant for this project, so why I can be here in the middle of a Toronto term. Uh, and I'd already written about Paul Bou by the time I had visit, by visited the memorial and the cemetery this August. So that in an odd sense, the story in which I follow Benjamin uh, precedes the act of following itself, so that even to me it's sometimes unclear as to who is following whom, let alone why, what. So it was in Bernouche that I started to wonder what Benjamin was doing to me. What do our authors lead us to do? Where do they lead us? From what and from whom do they distract us? In Minima Moralia, fragment 98, Adorno tells us that Benjamin understood history to have been written from the standpoint of the victor. Coming after Benjamin, we must pay attention to the waste products which have escaped dialectic. Benjamin has bequeathed us the task of bringing the intentionless within the realm of concepts to think dialectically and undialectically at the same time. This sounds a bit like, or maybe not, you can correct me, like uh, Benjamin's dialectical image or object, the one we bring into our own space and time in order to shed light to illuminate both the time of the object and our own time. And the collector, I think, it is that Benjamin says, the true method of making things present is to represent them in our space, not to represent ourselves in their space. The collector does just this, and so does the anecdote. Thus represented, the things allow no mediating construction from out of large contexts. So we represent the object or the image in our space unmediated by constructions out of large contexts. And also you could say we represent the object in us. Benjamin said that working on Proust made him sick. 
unproductive involvement, this is a quote, unproductive involvement with a writer who so splendidly pursues goals that are similar to my own, at least former goals, induces something, something like symptoms of internal poisoning in me. It is almost as though Proust is inside Benjamin. The two of them are literally involved. They innovate, to use a word that Benjamin liked, each other. And Benjamin's task is to bring the other author out of himself into a new version in German for us to see. Willi Haas, the editor, editor of uh, Die Literarische Welt, described Benjamin's working methods in somewhat similar terms. Whatever subject he was working on, he didn't approach it via analogies, definitions, metaphors. He dug his way out of the kernel of the matter, like a gnome who keeps treasures in a mine shaft whose exit has been buried. Haas's image is striking. It implies that Benjamin was, in a sense, the essence of what he described, or at least he was in the essence of it, a sort of imminence in which he is not differentiated from the object of his, his inquiry until he's dug his way out of the mine shaft, and maybe not even then. Benjamin, the subterranean gnome, is perhaps the Benjamin, also Benjamin the child in his autobiographical sequences of Berlin childhood around 1900 and a Berlin, Berlin Chronicle, in which he is or was the objects of his childhood. He describes how he learned to disguise himself in words which were really clouds, he says, and this made him similar to things and places. Standing behind a door, he is the door. He takes on the colours of stained glass, and those colours taste. Why is there anything in the world, he asks. Why the world? He can imagine its non-being just as easily as he can imagine its being. He tells us the story of the words, the door, the stained glass windows. And so these things have an afterlife in the 1930s as well as in our time in their being or non-being. They're the seeds of grain Benjamin finds in Herodotus's account of Sanmenitus' humbling and grief, which is, this is in the storyteller. Even centuries later, he says, it's not clear why the great king breaks down at the sight of one of his servants being taken to be executed, whereas seeing his son and daughter had apparently left him unmoved. I quote, Herodotus offers no explanations. His report is utterly dry. That is why, after thousands of years, his, this story from ancient Egypt is still capable of provoking astonishment and reflection. It is like those seeds of grain that have lain for centuries in the airtight chambers of the pyramids and have retained their germinative power to this day. So unlike the novel, which is gobbled up by a solitary reader, the story does not expend itself and it can't be consumed. The story is not a graspable commodity. It's more organic than inert. It also resembles, or resembled, since Benjamin says it's becoming a thing of the past, the miniatures, ivory carvings, and so on, by which humans sought to imitate the patient process of nature, the slow piling up, I think he's citing Valérie here, um, one on top of another, of thin, transparent layers. The sanction for this kind of accumulative, collective narrative is death. Its arena is work, and its subject is experience. Since these have all vanished, the living story has become a fossil. Adorno quotes Benjamin as announcing, I don't care about people, I care about things. Indeed, Benjamin seems to have thought of himself as a thing in Moon, for example, in the Berlin childhood, uh, where he fears finding himself stretched out on his own bed, or when he tells us that he was the door, the words, the colours. In this sense, he re resembles his storyteller, whose gift is his ability to relate his life her distinction to be able to, re to relate her entire life. The storyteller, I quote, he is the man who could let the wick of his life be consumed completely by the gentle flame of his story, 
This is the basis of the incomparable aura that surrounds the storyteller. There seems to be something sacrificial in this, and Adorno notes it in his account of Benjamin, which prefaces the um, letters. Walter Benjamin, the person, was from the very beginning so completely the medium of his work. His felicity was so much one of the mind that anything one might call immediacy of life was refracted. There was something incorporeal about him, master of his own ego as few others have been. He seemed alienated from his own physio. Just as Benjamin's thinking constitutes the antithesis of the existential concept of the person, he seems empirically, despite extreme individuation, hardly to have been a person at all, but rather an arena of movement in which a certain content forced its way through him into language. Adorno also says that as a correspondent, Benjamin unfolded himself in loving reportage and narrative. He wrote with a diplomatic reserve and etiquette, and I quote Adorno again, there is something touching about that diplomacy when one remembers how little the artfully constructed sentences actually facilitated his life, how incommensurate he remained with existing conditions, and how unassimilable in spite of temporary successes. Only by sacrificing life did Benjamin become the spirit that lived by this idea um, that there must be a human state that demands no sacrifice. In Adorno's account of Benjamin and in Benjamin's account of the storyteller, the storyteller's life is sacrificed to sentences that don't save him. The storyteller is righteous, erratic, he's in the story, and thus in some sense he is the story. This is a kind of imminence that is in the end sacrificed to the idea of imminence, as well as to the hope of a state in which sacrifice does not have to be made. So I wonder if this is how we should read Benjamin Benjaminianly by sinking ourselves into him, as he says of the storyteller, finding ourselves in him, tunneling our way through strata that are formed over time. Can we, as Adorno suggests, read Benjamin dialectically and undialectically at the same time, while also leaving him intact in his incommensurability and unassimilability? Perhaps this is the dialectical image that's brought into our time but remains of its own time, so that we are obliged to track it, mine it perhaps, only to admit in the end that one has been internally poisoned by one's unproductive involvement with these traces or traces. Perhaps as Adorno himself complained of Benjamin's dialectical image, we're not reading him dialectically enough. Perhaps we're extracting from the strata in order to solidify them into a new object or commodity or myth. It's easy to understand the irritation of the elderly man in the Vernus Hotel. It must feel like a tacit accusation to have one person show up every two years, asking after the German-Jewish philosopher who suffered at the hands of the French. The man whose family had been in that house for several generations, the receptionist said, must wonder why it matters, what the university folk are looking for, why they're digging around in the past when the present, particularly in France at the moment, is so precarious. But isn't this what Benjamin told us to do? I'm still following him or trying to... In the Berlin Chronicle, he says that memory isn't an instrument for exploring the past, it's its medium, like the earth in which the dead are buried. We have to dig, says Benjamin, to return repeatedly to the same matter, which, like the layers of the story, forms a deposit. Fruitless searching is as much a part of this exercise as success. The point is not simply to compile an inventory. There's also the dark joy of the place of the finding, the digging itself. He says to dig in new places and then go deeper into the old ones. Don't expect to find more than fragments and torsos and don't expect it to amount to anything like an autobiography or a memoir, an image or an object. We dig, it seems, from this description because we dig. And like the flaneur, it has to be somewhat aimless. 
This seems counter to the memorialising impulse whereby monuments are erected, streets are renamed, esplanades inaugurated, memorial spaces planned, as in Paul Brunewer and Berlin, the memory industry, the death industry, death tourism, kind of what I was doing. No doubt the so-called Benjamin industry makes us feel uneasy because it has to do with what Benjamin called the sequence and continuous flow of life, or at least the idea of these, the wish for them which seems counter to the awakening of flashing up that Benjamin saw as the result, as the result of dialectical thinking. Perhaps it's unclear as to whether the Walter Benjamin Esplanade in Nevers or the Danny Caravan monument at Portbou are dialectical images or commodificatory myths or both nor am I sure in which direction my own writing has tunnelled or turned. Yet in failing to publish, I seem to have succeeded to, in, to cite Adorno again, uh, offering up for sale something that no one wants to buy. I've baffled the market paradigm, as Bart also says, by writing as though only one reader needed this book, and that reader was me. <laughs> so I begin to wonder whether this is how to write dialectically and undialectically at the same time, to produce more debris, more rubble, instead of building monuments of solid iron. The caravan memorial is constructed in a weathering steel alloy called Corten that is pre-rusted so that the sea salt water will not corrode it uh, so much or so quickly. As famously, apparently, there's a, a, a website which uh, advertises Corten. It's famously used in Anthony Gormley's Angel of the North. Um, surely this, is, this seems very allegorizable to me. There'll be no more layers of rust, or if there are layers of rust, um, uh, it, it, it won't result, as the website says, in failure, that the monument will not fail. It will always be there. It might get thinner. Benjamin, whose body decayed somewhere in Paul Bou Cemetery, is awarded a monument outside the cemetery, mind you, that's not going to decay very quickly, or at all. Oddly enough, I wrote something like this before I visited the monument, and before I knew what it was made for. The edifice is solid, durable, intended to convey a specific meaning to the spectator. As you approach, you see the entrance, which is like a giant tic-tac lid that's been flipped up from the ground. And having followed a smooth path paved with steel at its borders, you find yourself beneath the lid, which is also made of steel, at the top of a flight of stairs, which you begin to descend without knowing where you'll end up. After hesitating a moment, I decided I'd better take my suitcase with me down the steps, 106 of them, as I recall from the biography, I lost count, and eventually I reached the inscribed glass wall where the stairs dead end, and one is more or less forced to look out over a precipice across the sea. There's nowhere to go beyond this. The passage is narrow and dark enough that one does not wish to linger. I began to climb back up, registering, as no doubt the artist wishes us to, the futility of the journey and the necessity of return. I'd like to end with another allegorical reading of the story by Nikolai Leskov I referred to earlier. Benjamin doesn't discuss it in his storyteller essay, but I think he must have liked it because it's full of practical details, for example, about how to build a bridge on eight granite piers with links and steel rivets made to measure and bolts, thick as a man's arm made in England. The story is the sealed angel. It describes the old believers, artisanal bridge builders who worship an icon that accompanies them everywhere. The icon is confiscated after its face has been sealed with wax and it's taken across the river where it's installed in a church that's not of the old believer's faith. They love their icon so fiercely that they're prepared to die for it. They go to great lengths to have a duplicate icon made so that they can steal their own angel back from the church on the other side. Luca carries the angel in a brocade pouch against his chest. I quote, we blessed the angel who went before us and it seemed to us it would be harder to part with this most wonderful icon than with our own lives. 
the angel goes before them, they follow the angel, and yet in the end the old believers renounce their old belief and are anointed into the ruling church with holy chrism. A rational explanation is offered for all the miracles which have been recounted during the course of the narrative. Now there are two angel icons, both of them unsealed, but presumably the uh, old believers no longer value either of them. Still, something's been revealed to the reader, namely how to build a bridge on eight granite piers, how to make a duplicate angel icon, how to unseal the face of a painted angel, how to lapse from your faith and be anointed uh, into another one with holy prism. If the angel isn't the seal, if the sealed angel in the in the in the sealed angel isn't exactly Benjamin's angel of history, then perhaps it's also exact, not exactly the icon we make of Benjamin in order to carry him before us, to follow him about, as I seem to be doing duplicating him and loving him, sealing and unsealing him, revealing his face, altering him as we are altered, moved around by what we read. I said that Benjamin was an unlikely Virgil. He's not exactly inviting us to follow him, whereas uh, Virgil knows his way around hell fairly well. And yet we do through the fragments and torsos we unearth as we dig here and there, unearthing. The danger is that it will amount to something, and perhaps this is because we're not listening deeply enough. If telling tales is a craft we're losing or have lost, then so is listening. No one wants to listen to stories anymore, says Benjamin. We don't have time. We're embarrassed when someone says they want to hear a story. And because experience and death are extinct, there are no more stories to tell anyway. Instead, we have information, and this can't be exchanged orally. To listen to a story, you need to be relaxed. You need to be bored, as I'm sure some of you are. Boredom is the dream bird that hatches the egg of experience, but the nesting places of this bird are being destroyed in the cities by novels, by iPhones, which isolate us. Without boredom, those dream eggs fail to hatch. Benjamin says, the more self-forgetful a listener is, the more deeply what she listens to is impressed upon her memory. When the rhythm of work has seized her, she listens to the tales in such a way that the gift of retelling them comes to her all by itself. This is the nature of the web in which the gift of storytelling is cradled. This is how today it is unraveling on every side after being woven thousands of years ago in the ambiance of the oldest forms of craftsmanship. It is difficult to forget ourselves. We're surrounded by screens in which we see ourselves reflected. Instead of digging here and there, we follow, perhaps of necessity, the iron steps towards a clear end point, and then we follow the steps back up again. This is us taking Benjamin for a walk rather than the other way round. It's the dialectical image made solid and unrusting, and there is not much of a story to tell about it. Okay, thank you very much. And uh, in the spirit of uh, moving the program along, I'm uh, going to hand things over to Howard. Thank you, Sebastian. I I'd like to thank everybody involved in kind of making kind of this book, not just uh, Sam, kind of Esther, and Sebastian, you know, the, the translators and editors, but also the you know, anonymous members of the uh, kind of the, the first editorial team, and in particular those who had the idea of punctuating the stories of Benjamin with images uh, by Clay. Um, was a a, a genial idea in many ways. In some, it's an idea that, that was risky. It could have been could have been awful, but I think in, in the case of the uh, the storyteller, it adds a, a moment of respiration to between each of the, the stories, which is essential to stop them becoming just forty two kind of short 
narratives by, by Benjamin. It allows a kind of moment of kind of reflection or, or, or thought to take place. Uh, and also um, an appreciation of the, the quirky humor of the anonymous selector who can make some extraordinary, <coughs> extraordinarily appropriate kind of choices of image and text. And sometimes, you know, in the end, I had such confidence in their judgment that when the image seemed to be false, I felt that it was my problem rather than the, you know, <laughs> so, so I had to read the stories a company on, e on either side of it and uh, look at the image more carefully. So reading the storyteller, um, you gain the insight into the stories of, uh, of Benjamin. Um, this new Benjamin that's emerging, radio Benjamin, the, what I call the, the impromptu or the unplugged uh, kind of Benjamin. But also you get a sense of the proximity of his work to the concerns you know, of Clay and other artists uh, that were his contemporaries. But above all Clay and his sequence of uh, angels, um, strange figures and landscapes which kind of just seems so appropriate for uh, punctuating and accompanying these, uh, these stories. But I realized when I, when I got to the end, and I don't know whether this was again an act of uh, uh, anonymous serendipity or, um, um, or artful design, and I'm, I'm still not sure, but I realized that there'd also been uh, a very kind of intense process of, it, process of education um, taking place for a while the, uh, you know, the sequences, these accompanying sequences kind of played off against each other, the sequences of the, the clay images and the sequences of the story. Because by, getting, by the time I got to the end, I, I realized that there was a, an, a, a clay image which was outside of the series, almost the condition of possibility of the series, which of course is the celebrated uh, Angelus Novus, which is there at the kind of beginning of the, the text. And then at the end, almost kind of framing and closing the, uh, the text, was a citation of Thesis 9 from the uh, collection of theses on the concept of, of history. So framing this play between story, review, reflection, dream, and Clay's images, framing it, providing a um, uh, almost like a place in which these two sequences could play through, framing it was Angelus Novus and the Ninth Thesis, which, after the experience of reading and looking at the images and the, the texts, was suddenly revealed as a story. So the thesis, um, Thesis 9, a clay drawing named Angelus Novus shows an angel, looking as though he is about to move away from something he is fixedly contemplating. That, for the first time, struck me as a story. And I could see it in, as a continuum, as part of kind of Benjamin's stories. And I could then also see that you know, what were called, maybe inappropriately, theses on the concept of history were actually stories about the, the concept of history. So suddenly that, that last work you know, produced and um, kind of read out you know, in, the, uh, in the shadow we've been, been hearing about. That, that last work completely changed for me. You know, almost um, you know, in, in, a, in a flicker of the eye, kind of suddenly realizing that, 
gosh, this, this interplay of image and kind of text suddenly tells me that this text that I thought I knew well, the ninth thesis, was a story. But it then also works retrospectively, because then I began to think, or I was forced to think, well, what is a story? You know, what are these stories narrated, etzeled by the etzeled, the, the storyteller? You know, what you know, what actually are they? And what was Benjamin um, venturing when he wrote these stories? And what did it mean that these stories, you know, this form of storytelling, is continued into the stories uh, on the concept of, of history? And then I realized that the stories themselves are kind of rather more complicated and rather more uneasy than I appreciated on the first time through. So then, going back and looking at some of them the second time through, I began, uh, helped by uh, the observations uh, in, the, uh, in the introduction, to try and relate them to this question of experience. Um, the introduction kind of shows us kind of very, 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 very helpfully and insightfully that the Benjamin, when he's thinking about stories, when he's thinking about the storyteller, is using that as a as a as a as a way of approaching the the problem of thinking about experience, and it's a, a problem which situates him directly with respect to the you know, the revolutionary philosophy of Kant and what Kant was trying to do and the effect that Kant had. What I think, what, what struck me was that looking at the stories, I could see or I could, I could detect or I could sense kind of echoes with a storyteller who came directly out of Kant, namely Kleist, uh, kind of very important for, uh, for Benjamin, but who had a very, very particular understanding of what you know, Kant meant by experience. And it's one that goes back to a kind of text that uh, Kant wrote, published in 1786, called uh, Prolegomena to uh, Any Metaphysics that Consider Itself a Science, you know, the kind of precursor of Benjamin's program of a coming philosophy, uh, which also you know, is, is a reflection on, it, on future metaphysics. But in, in, that, in that text, Kant says you know, the, the question, the question of experience, you know, should be, we have something. How is it possible? Um, in his case, he says, we have Newtonian physics. How is it possible? We have Euclidean geometry. How is it possible? Um, what immediately you know, occurred to Kant was that you know, he could give an explanation, or he could say, what the conditions of possibility were for those experiences that were Newt Newtonian mechanics and Euclidean geometry. And to do so, he had to go back to some stories that were told in the previous century by Descartes in the Discourse of Method. A series of stories about a kind of misplaced and uh, unhappy education that culminated in kind of warfare and uh, sitting by the fire in a lull from the warfare, kind of reflecting on what his life was about. And it leads, as we know, to the you know, celebrated um, thesis or story, uh, you know, I think, therefore I am. And this Kant felt 
was you know, sufficient. You know, the fact that Descartes had told that story was sufficient to answer the question, you know, we have physics, we have you know, geometry, that's how it's possible. Because there is a thinking and self-reflective I that's at the basis of the experience of Newtonian physics and, uh, and geometry. But very quickly after that, especially in the works of Kleist, that question uh, became generalized to any event or object or feeling. And the story that Descartes told was just no longer considered sufficient. So Kleist begins to imagine you know, putting that question, we have such and such. You know, we have a woman that finds herself pre pregnant. How is that possible? The obvious answer for Kleist is not the one we might uh, imagine. Um, we have somebody fighting for the good and causing extraordinary destruction. How is that possible? And what Kleist said is that if we just try to answer that philosophically, if we just try to say you know, the conditions of possibility are such, 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 the four groups of categories founded in the transcendental unity of our perception, you know, I think therefore I am, if we do that, then you know, we miss everything that's important. And what we need to do is to tell stories. So we have to start telling stories about, you know, we're all here, how is that possible? And we could all start then multiplying the stories you know, which might you know, explain that. Probably we could spend our lifetimes telling stories about why you know, we come to be here now. It might be a worthy way to pass a life as well, I think of worse ones. Um, but like Kleist said, yes, there have to be stories which will you know, become this philosophy of the future. Now, that of course is problematic. You're already in Plato, storytellers are expelled from Plato's Republic you know, for their kind of questionable relationship to what was thought to be truth. Um, but with Kleist, a, philosophy or, you know, a possibility enters philosophy that philosophy, you know, philosophizing can take place by means of telling stories. And I think this is kind of what then, what then Benjamin tries to adopt in his storytelling. I think it's what's happening in the stories in the concept of history. We have a concept of history. We have a concept of progress. How is that possible? Um, instead of, you know, sort of giving a demonstration of how that's possible, you tell stories about how it's possible. And what's characteristic of a lot of those stories is that they don't provide us with definite conditions of possibility. But in many cases, they even devour their conditions of possibility. You know, the stories become self-destructive uh, kind of technologies that say you know, there is no one answer to how this is possible. And as soon as a, you know, a, a narration tries to invent a single narration for how any event, object, person, emotion, how, how they are possible, then it will implode, it will destroy itself. And we see Gav Benjamin uh, employing this then, kind of throughout the, the stories. Um, one that I, I find particularly uh, uh, extraordinary is the, uh, the cactus stage. Uh, I'd like to just reflect a little bit on the, um, on, on, on the cactus hedge, because in a way the cactus hedge uh, 
kind of starts with you know, a, um, an event. So we, we could say, and in fact, there, there could be many events to start with. But we could say that you know, this story begins you know, with the question, you know, there are three masks in a, in a shop, Hollywood de la Botte in, in Paris. How is that possible? So you know, here are these three masks. How is it possible that they are there? And we can imagine a number of narratives, but the narrative that kind of Benjamin imagines is that these come from the collection of a certain O'Brien. Well, how is that possible? Well, it is possible because O'Brien was an inhabitant of, uh, of Ibiza. Um, and then at that point we go into this extraordinary story, which tries to say how it is possible that those three masks could be found in a shop in, uh, in Paris. And it's a story that involves an eccentric figure, um, intangible figure, O'Brien, who uh, seems to be suffering under the disappointment of a friend stealing his collection of African masks. He's endowed with a prodigious memory of how to make and unmake knots, and beset by insomnia, so you see the conditions of possibility are just annoying, <laughs> keeps you know, you know, vertiginously multiplying. Beset by insomnia, he would um, sort of lull himself to sleep by imagining tying complicated knots and then undoing or un undoing those knots. And in the course of one of these kind of sessions of uh, trying to bring out sleep, um, he saw the cactus hedge outside, the prickly pears had already been, uh, been harvested, and somehow, Benjamin says, you know, we hadn't seen him for some months, the storyteller says we hadn't seen him for some months, somehow with that experience, the memory of the uh, African masks that had been taken from him and then had been lost in a fire on a boat, so you know, the, the, the ramifications continue, the memory of those came back and he reconstructed them. He remade them and then showed them to uh, this, uh, you know, the narrator as kind of the products of, uh, of his memory. And at one level, then, when the narrator comes to Paris, you know, the conditions of possibility for those masks being there are this whole kind of complicated, uh, ramifying kind of story, with the irony that the the art dealer thinks that these are kind of genuine ancient masks, but you know, the narrator kind of knows that they're not. But behind that, there's also you know, other kind of darker points in this, uh, in, in this narrative, which means that it, you know, it, it, it at no moment remains transparent as an account or a story of how it is possible that these masks arrive here. And in particular, there's the story which follows the, the episode, or part of the story, which follows the episode of the reconstruction from memory of the masks, which says O'Brien, after doing this, set himself to another task, which, during which he died, the task that killed him. So the question then is, is left, and it's a question which <coughs> almost becomes you know, a, a portal to kind of more stories, and an invitation to tell more stories, is what was it that O'Brien remembered that in trying to recreate, uh, it killed him? So the story is, is, is in no respect kind of ever closed. You know, there, the, 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 the attempt to answer the question, you know, the philosophical question posed formally by Kant, we have three African masks, how is that possible? 
does not lead to a, a fixed account of why they're there. There's no, you know, I think therefore I am at the bottom of this. But there's just this kind of mystery and the, the strangeness of ever ramifying kind of stories. And I think this is kind of what, um, what, you know, what, what strikes me as kind of the, the legacy of storytelling. That is, it's in the line of Christ. It's a philosophical storytelling that uh, is never complete, or you know, in the spirit of Kleist's marionette it might be complete at some asymptotic you know, point uh, in, in the future. Um, but it's also one which kind of gives us a, a kind of richer and more provisional uh, approach to, uh, to experience. And what I, you know, I think what, what I owe to this, uh, you know, to, to this book is that it allowed me to understand Benjamin's storytelling in that legacy from Kant, Kleist, but also to see that he's telling stories on a lot more occasions than we think or thought that he was. Thank you very much. Terrific. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, and uh, I would, uh, I guess, now pass over to Matt for a response to the uh, two papers. Hopefully, you'll help us to uh, tie up these various uh, threads. Thanks, Sebastian. Thanks, everyone. Um, and thanks for the papers as well. Uh, I guess I want to try and think about these two papers in response to something Esther says in introducing this, which was the impetus behind book, or maybe one of the many impetuses behind the book, <coughs> you talked about in terms of the, the rescuing of what needed rescue, um, and that kind of rescuing impulse, which is very Benjaminian in itself, and you talked about that thematically in terms of the book itself in relation to, to three themes, the, of the dream, uh, dreamscapes, travel, and play, and the way in which these interact with each other, and it, and it seems to me, certainly in that, in that wonderful first uh, story, almost, presentation that we had. Um, there were all these themes of the dream and the travel and the play running through that already, in terms of dreams containing buried wishes uh, and buried memories, um, and the desires that run through uh, much of our activity. The idea of taking Benjamin for a walk already involved a kind of travel in which you might find you're being taken for a ride, and, um, and the playfulness of, of, of those elements of dream and travel themselves. Um, so it seemed to me that, that this idea about rescuing itself contained elements of, 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 a, of a dreaming and a, and a travel and a play, which, um, which both run through Benjamin's ideas, but also perhaps some of the themes of, of what uh, these two papers talked about. You talked about Benjamin as a, as a kind of subterranean gnome, or that image of Benjamin as a subterranean gnome, this lovely image there. Um, one that kind of digs through to identify with the essence of things. Um, and you, I think, really nicely connected that with the with the mimetic impulse of the child, which, which is that key idea in Benjamin's work as well. And it's that which I think might be one way, struck me as one way of thinking about what might need rescuing in Benjamin's work in terms of what's also been rescued in these translations. Um, in terms of the kind of methodology of Benjamin, that's a, that's a kind of identifying with things you described, or the inner essence of things, which is really dangerous. Uh, as you said, and as you described, it comes back to being taken for a, for a ride by Benjamin. Um, because to identify with things involves a kind of reification of oneself. Um, 
what Adorno elsewhere kind of describes as this mimesis unto death, to, to, to over-identify with things. But for Benjamin, there's always a moment of danger, but always a glimmer of redemption in that kind of identification. There's a, almost a dialectics of reification in Benjamin. Um, the dangers you talk about in terms of poison, um, but also um, getting lost uh, or being taken for a ride. Um, but there's also a kind of erotics, isn't there, running through when you start to read Benjamin's work and become fascinated with it. It compels or takes hold of you in a way uh, which leads you to often wander quite aimlessly as well. Um, and it never quite lets you go. And I've always been fascinated by what it is in Benjamin's writings, perhaps more than other philosophers, um, which involves that kind of incredibly passionate engagement with his work, often to the detriment of our own logic or intellectual thought, um, such that we end up in these places. Um, but we also can't let go of his writing. Uh, it, it seems to permeate everything. And that's really dangerous, of course, uh, particularly for academics. Um, but there's also all, always in there that, that identifying with Benjamin, this kind of mimesis or, or, or reification in relation to Benjamin himself or his works, which also contain that moment of hope, um, that moment of possible redemption, or the possibility of a kind of rescuing within that moment of crisis. Um, and Howard talked about as well, within the relation to, the, to, to this, this wonderful collection, um, the way in which the assemblage of these, these fictions and reviews and the punctuation or juxtaposition of the images evolved in the end a kind of educative function. And I think that's the thing that, that really struck me between thinking about what Esther described in terms of what the book's doing and, and the way the papers responded to that um, was something like a rescuing of the educative function of Benjamin's writings, which is what I'm interested in. The dangers and, and the hopes of, of the way Benjamin writes itself, the way he uses images, and that retelling of, of the clay, famous clay image as a story. Um, Benjamin talks about art containing uh, an educative value or a teaching value. Um, it's quite hard to figure out what he means by this. Um, but somehow the way stories and artworks work, um, including the fictions here, if we think about his own writing or, or the way the images have been assembled, um, are trying to teach us something. There's a didacticism here, but in a way that isn't like normal didacticism. It compels us to respond, to act in a certain way, often in a slightly irrational way that leads us into strange places in Europe or elsewhere. Um, or strange detours in our own, in our own thought and writing. Um, so I, I want to think about what, what could be rescued from Benjamin's writing, being inspired by those two talks there and, and in a way that connects, luckily, since I had to respond without knowing what they're going to talk about, uh, in, in relation to some of my own interest in, in Benjamin's work, about one of the things that needs rescuing or that might have been buried in Benjamin's work, which things like the new translations at the back of this text uh, involve, is the idea of play or pedagogy, educative value or function of Benjamin's writing. There's a, a couple of wonderful reviews in the last section of this, as well as lots of um, examples of Benjamin's interest in children's riddles, children's rhymes, and so forth, um, which are, which are um, some of these translated for the first time. And I've become really interested in what's going on in Benjamin's uh, interesting childhood. Which, which was talked about in, in, in the first paper about the Berlin childhood, this mimetic impulse of children, and how that might be a way to philosophize. Um, I've been interested in, in to what extent that's been buried in Benjamin's writings. It's always there, but, but it seems we don't quite know what to do with it. I wonder if the concept of fantasy, which Esther mentioned at the beginning, might be one way of uh, quoting one of the main uh, citations of Benjamin that involves the idea of fantasy, that's one of the sections, one of the subsections of this as well. 
Benjamin thinks about fantasy in a, in a really interesting way, in a way that's opposed to the idea of imagination. Um, he talks about the, the deforming powers of fantasy versus the creative, uh, the creative function of the imagination. So the imagination often creates content, dreams up new worlds, new images, whereas fantasy, uh, uh, distinct in, in German, um, fantasy involves something like a deforming <coughs> of what's already there. And I think that might be tied to this educative function of what Benjamin's interested in and what compels us to keep reading and acting on Benjamin's work, and, uh, on Benjamin's writing. So fantasy, on the one hand, is neither purely creative. It always involves a kind of deforming destruction. And that connects back to this moment of crisis, destruction, and possible redemption that I began with. Um, that something about that danger in Benjamin's writing contains the glimmer. And, and the deforming aspect of fantasy uh, is really interesting there, that it's both destructive and creative. It involves a shift in form. Benjamin's really interested in always shifting forms, taking um, an idea or a story, or the way other people have taken stories, and have retold them in new genres, in new forms that reveal something different just by the reforming of the works. Um, he's really interested in, for example, Goethe's Elective Affinities, um, the way in which this is basically a novella that's been expanded to become a novel, and what happens to things like plot and character when uh, something like the genre of a short story and novella gets expanded to become a novel. Um, what happens to the content when it's deformed in that way? The other thing about fantasy is it involves this kind of idea of small differences. Um, and often Benjamin's fiction involves stories about these small differences. Howard was talking um, about some of, the, some of the stories there and some of the fiction. Um, one of the works which isn't translated for the first time here but, but takes on a new life through that context is, is that wonderful story of... of, of of, uh, in the Hasidic village, um, yeah. I don't know if you know the story, it's the beginning of Benjamin's essay on Kafka, I believe, where it's been uh, already translated in selective writing. Um, I won't tell the story. Do, you, do people know the story? Oh, sh shall, I read, shall I read the story? Okay, it's really short. I tell the story. Uh, can you remember which page it's on, Esther? Uh, it involves the, the short version, if we can find it quickly. The short version is... Yeah, it's close to the back, under the four, four tales, tales section. Yeah. Okay, it involves basically um, people. Ah, I think I found it. Uh, 180. And this is disinterested in small differences, which is incredibly important for this idea of, of, of fantasy and deforming. Uh, begins in a, a village, there's a number of people sitting around in inns. Uh, they're all locals except for one who didn't know anyone who's a stranger who's dressed in rags. The conversations uh, are about what they would wish for if they were given one wish. So, this idea of wish uh, that runs through. Uh, one of the themes of this of this work, and travel, because uh, he's a stranger. Uh, once everyone had said what their wishes were, there remained only this stranger in the corner, uh, and he answers the question. He says, I wish I would be an all-powerful king who ruled over a vast land, and at night I would lie asleep in my castle, and the enemy, enemy would break in past the border, and before dawn, horsemen would reach my castle, meet with no resistance, and woken in alarm from my sleep, I would not even have time to dress myself, and wearing only a shirt, I would escape past mountains and valleys and past forests and hills without respite day and night until I finally arrived safely here at this bench in your corner. That is what I would wish for. And the rest of them looked at each other un uncomprehendingly. And what will come from all that, asked one, a shirt was the answer. So it, all he wants is, is actually to have the shirt. Uh, it, and, uh, it's, it's a small difference that will be incredibly redemptive in that moment. So uh, the stories about small differences, uh, which tie up to this notion of fantasy, I think, there. And it's tied to Benjamin's kind of messianic 
uh, impulse learning for his work. And finally, there's this connection to gestures, and this comes back to the idea of mimesis. Um, this idea of, 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 of the mimetic innovation, this, this thing that children do when, when, when they identify an object, which is really dangerous but um, contains this glimmer of hope, involves this kind of balance between the eye muscles and the hand muscles, right? a kind of innovation uh, which produces these gestures which, which many of thinks are always utopian. When he writes about uh, theatre and theatre schools and pedagogy, his examples of this is children's gestures um, when they, when they uh, involve an improvisation and how they, they contain utopian gestures of a, of a kind of another world of where the body reconciles with itself and with the world outside it somehow. Um, so I think the idea of fantasy might run through what's going on in, in, the, in, these, um, I, in, these, in the stories collection here, collected here, as well as some of the writings. And I guess I want to end by thinking about, that explains some of Benjamin's interest in children that are translated here. He's interested in the reviews of, of some of his writings on children's textbooks um, and, um, and kind of pedagogical writings which are translated for the first time. And why that might be rescuing or, or might have been buried is an interesting story in the, in the particularly the Anglo-American reception of Benjamin, um, which is that at the end of this, this story, there's the uh, end of this collection, there's this uh, rescuing of certain texts which didn't get often translated into, into English in the selected writings. That's partly to do with a disciplinary context in which Benjamin's work gets taken up um, in the Anglo-American reception of his writing, particularly in the kind of 90s. Um, which is usually taken up by, by literary scholars, literary theorists, um, comparative people working in comparative literature departments, particularly in, 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 in the US and, and to some extent in Britain, um, which is a story about philosophizing and disciplinary, disciplinarity in itself, but also involves something like the interest was always in these literary writings. So some of the stuff that doesn't get translated into the selective writings, well, Benjamin's interest much more in pedagogy. Some of the reviews that get translated here for the first time. Lots of his literary reviews are translated in selective writing, not his reviews of children's textbooks. Um, so that's partly through the literary reception of Benjamin's work. Um, but it's not simply something that happens, you know, it, 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 it hides something uh, or it buries over something that was already there. Although the earliest translations of Benjamin into English in the 60s were, were perhaps illuminations, but there is really early in the late 60s, early 70s, translations of his writing on theatre schools, some, some of the earliest. Uh, the English translation of that. So it was there, and it kind of gets buried. And there's a load of new translations of Benjamin that have appeared in the last five, ten years. Radio Benjamin was mentioned. The early writings of Benjamin are mentioned. Uh, and this wonderful collection as well. Um, which start to reveal this element of Benjamin's writings. An interesting play in pedagogy, to an external extent which didn't get taken up. And it reveals this prehistory of Benjamin's interest. He was involved in the youth movement. He was involved in... Um, uh, thinking about proletarian children's theatres, he's kind of writing theoretical texts on this. Uh, he's involved in ideas about the crisis of education uh, in the uh, beginning of the 1910s and 20s. And so I think what's also really interesting about what this book tells us in relation to those other texts is perhaps something about why these, this interest in pedagogy and play and, and childhood suddenly is starting to be revealed now. I mean, there's very mundane reasons for that, I'm sure, to do with copyright. Uh, but there's also really interesting reasons <coughs> about the way in which that prehistory of Benjamin's writing and that interest in pedagogy um, starts to resurface right at this moment in the, in the last decade to do with our own crisis of education, to do with a kind of recovery of, the, of a certain form of the student movement over the last uh, 10 years, which connects back to that initial reception of Benjamin in, in, in the 60s 
uh, in both German and in English, and ties back to something that might be um, buried in Benjamin's writings in which these translations are starting to expand. Fantastic, thank you. Okay, Matt, thank you for uh, helping us uh, synthesize a little of the various uh, strands that we've uh, heard about, and uh, we are doing well for time. So if there are any questions or comments from the floor, then now's a, a good time. I'm going to take it upon myself to end the And before people leave, yeah. those who are leaving, be aware that you can purchase this marvellous volume for a discount <laughs> price of £10, right at the back there. Indeed. So people are aware. Okay. Indeed. Okay, I saw a hand over there. Yeah, thanks for the wonderful presentations. And, uh, I've only had time to have a quick look at this, uh, this book, which I acquired very recently. Um, I just wanted to ask, um, is, it, uh, is it wrong that the, to say that the first thesis on philosophy of history starts with the word, <coughs> a story is told over or an automaton? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just remembering yes. that. Um, but also thinking that if we, if you, Howard encourages us to read the, reread the pieces as stories. They were first introduced to me, I think, as aphorisms, possibly. So I was just interested in if there was any value in comparing the difference between an aphorism and a story. Um, that was my main point and question. And just as a sort of bracket to that, it led me on to think about other fragmented uh, examples in Benjamin and then thinking other pieces in the Arcade Project, aphorisms, stories, or are they this dreaded information <laughs> that he disliked so much in, in the story? I just wonder if there's any value in exploring those differences. Doesn't he say in the storyteller that the, that the proverb is, a, is a, the ruin of a story? I think he says something. Yeah, I think yeah. he sees them all as being quite interconnected. Um, and there's something very, I mean, a, a proverb or, or an aphorism, there's something very essential about it, isn't it? It goes to, yeah. the, goes to the heart of the matter very quickly. You don't, I mean, it narrates something, but there isn't anything. Wasted. They're runes. I think that's another image. Mm. So, so it's wrong to think of the thesis as aphorism at all. No. Why would it be wrong? I thought it was no. I don't think I'm saying it's wrong. I think I'm saying that the forms are are interlinked. Mm. I, mean, I, yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess aphorism is more kind of closed in on itself, isn't it? I mean, it um, it uh, although. You know, when you read an aphorism, it, it points out beyond itself, and you know, Nietzsche famously said. You know, you need a book to interpret a, an aphorism. Um, they are fairly kind of closed upon themselves. And I think the story, though, the way I'm understanding Benjamin's stories, is that uh, it, it, it has, it, it's, there's no way that it has any kind of closure, that there's, uh, um, there's always going to be you know, the possibility of other stories. I think when you have a, an aphorism from Nietzsche or Karl Kraus or, or something, you know, you're not going to kind of complete it, or, uh, or, or or write it better, or or have another go at an episode in it. It doesn't leave those kind of resources where you know, where a story does. It leaves kind of questions which can then be taken up by the uh, the reader. So I find that the 
you know, you know, what work all the theses, and theses are yet another thing, aren't they? They're, you know, they're, you know, there's been a lot of reflection on what a thesis is. Um, but uh, you know, what, what, you know, those stories on the, uh, on the philosophy of history, I think they're, def they're definitely not aphorisms. They're storytelling which invites kind of more storytelling. Um, I was always very struck that they were, you know, Benjamin did read them out, you know, in, you know, in, you know, when he was in captivity. Um, and, you know, they, they were part of storytelling. They seemed to be also kind of part of his idea that uh, the storyteller can you know, remember, you know, that they're written in a way that they, you know, they, they don't need their, their paper media, you know, that you could remember. You're remembering the uh, the first, yeah, yeah. You could remember, then you could, you know, say, hey, Paul, tell us, tell us the first story of the first of this man. Yeah, yeah. Then you could, yeah, but, but actually, you know, it is it is possible, and I, I think that's why they're, you know, they're left, they're written in that way so that they can be rescued from the catastrophe, which you know, Bengal is all engulfing him and, uh, and the world. Didn't he read quite a lot of his work aloud? I think. Yeah, yeah it was. Yeah. Because there's a. A story of him reading aloud to Adorno, the Berlin Chronicle, I think, and Adorno responding to it, saying how, how wonderful it was, and it, it, yeah, you know, yeah, it yeah. demythologizes, and, um, yeah. and the Baudelaire, I think, you yeah. know, so, so there's something, there is something, there's an oral component yeah. that, that maybe we need to rescue, that we, yeah. it's, it's which, I mean, comes out in radio, right, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. so yeah. well versed in that. Yeah. One of the stories in here is about that, right? About him reciting yeah. one of the stories on the radio. Yeah, yeah. 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 To the minute, that's, that's the one. Yeah, that's the one I'm doing. Yeah, so there's a gap, and then a story is then told about the gap. Isn't mm. it? So yeah, yeah. And the story is told by someone else, so this, this mm. thing is generating other stories. Anyone else? Comments, questions? Um, yeah, I always kind of invite me the same question. I'm so sorry if I asked you some of you listened before, but how, the way both of you spoke about, well, you spoke about a subterranean image of Benjamin, and you spoke about the, how the structure of the story, um, it's kind of going, it's, it's working outwards by going backwards in some way. Um, and you get some kind of concentric motion in that, which is also going back into the past at the same time. Um, and whenever I think about Benjamin, I always end up thinking about questions of fate regarding this, this particular reading. And I'm wondering about a mode of going back into the past, either in order to then work one's way out um, at the present, or to qualify in a particular way without making some kind of fatalistic, perhaps, what could be called mythic judgment on causality or necessity. Um, and yeah, I was wondering if in your readings of the stories, um, either of you, you felt as if there was some kind of motion or rhythm that was contra-faith mm. or contra-myth, through, but through a very specific kind of, like, the narrative is still there, there's still reasons given, but it's, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. moving in a slightly more playful way, and that was mm. the way you both described that kind of harmonise with some of the things I always think about. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. I mean, two things occurred to me. I mean, the first is the, um, yeah, the, the very um, suggested distinction between fantasy and imagination that uh, um, Matt reminded us of. And this idea of uh, fantasy as, as being deformative. So in a sense, kind of fantasy 
um, kind of rolling kind of fate or, or, or mythical fate. You know, that is, you know, what what seems to be you know, it's it's part of you know, Bengemann's counterfactual method you know, generally. You know, you know, he said the fate of the arcades. You know, what what happened? The fate of the arcades in the 19th century was that they became department stores. But there were many other. You, know, you can go back and then you know erode that. You know, that, that, that fate into other you know, possible stories or other possible futures. <coughs> it may still be, uh, be, be, be our futures. Um, and the other, the other um, kind of reply to me, takes me back to the, uh, you know, the cactus hedge, where you know, the, the story just uh, embraces you know, an extraordinary contingency. So there's, uh, um, you know, in, in, in this story of, of loss, betrayal, you know, that led to the destruction of this collection of, uh, of African masks. There's this contingency that, that arises. You know, but I mean, fate embraces yeah. contingency too, but it does yeah. something very specific. But this is, to it. Yeah, I think, yeah. Benjamin thinks it does something very specific. Yeah, to I, it, so that moment of yeah. I think this contingency, though, Benjamin, is, 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 is just not at all fateful, though. I think uh -huh. it, it, it actually, um, you know, it, it, it leads to any number of, of, of possible futures. Are you thinking of a kind of fatalism rather than? Uh, no, I'm thinking about kind of early like critique yeah. of violence, fate and character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, quite, I think he has quite specific. I think the lines mm -hmm. I always think about from the critique of violence of um, the origin of law is violence, crime by fate. Yeah, yeah. Um, mm -hmm. That making necessary. <coughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And how he seems to employ throughout his career various ways of um, working against that. Yeah, particularly against the, the notion of law uh, there as well. So I think another approach to this could be that uh, the storyteller is trying to get the, or is, is eroding any idea that there could be laws of experience, or that law experience could be law bound in any way. Or that the laws are cited in them, or invoked in some way, and then as you're saying, kind of. Yeah. Um, Deformed or taken in a different direction, or the, the, that kind of radical contingency that you, you, yeah. you don't really know where you're ending up and 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 why in these narratives. Yeah. Um, and the and the fragment form seems to. It's quite interesting with the fra and Bart says this about working with fragments. That I think he says at one point it's all very well writing in fragments, but then you have to um, work out how to organize. Nobody appreciates how you have to organize them. You have to put them into some kind of order. And I think Benjamin worked quite hard, didn't he, with with some of the pieces with with the Berlin Chronicle, for example. I think I think he worked over it until about 1938. So he was working out an order for these what looked like fairly self-contained fragments. So, so there is a sense of 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 narrative kind of yeah, order yeah, there. That, yeah. that um, I, I think this book shows that you know, that that kind of ordering can be done posthumously. Right. You know, so mm. I mean, the editors brought out an order in these in these texts yes, that right. probably Bangman wasn't. You know, mm. he, he, he performed it, but uh, you know, it, it had to be rearranged in, uh, at this particular moment mm. for it to emerge. It's funny because he did that a little bit himself as well. I mean, you mentioned the uh, uh, the tale about the um, uh, the Hasidic Jews in the uh, in the village inn is kind of parable with this obscure point that doesn't quite seem to you know the moral of the story is unclear if you like. Um, I mean, he definitely wrote this uh, as part of these other four tales in the nineteen thirties around the time that he was working on that big Kafka essay. Mm. This is a an element of kind of a bricolage. It's this kind of mini narrative that is inserted into what is otherwise a kind of a scholarly uh, uh, 
a piece on Kafka, right? Something that reads a little bit like something Kafka might have written on it himself, but is ostensibly a kind of an independent standalone piece that's kind of you know cut away and stuck into something else, and it gives it a different kind of narrative coherence if one wants to call it that. But in the in the essay on fake character, for example, the, the it's comedy. It's kind of a it, it, character <laughs> and the freedom of character is, is kind of takes on this comedic function. There's something about the grotesque or the comedic in these stories, which involves this kind of reforming that, that's the, the kind of fantasy against, against that thing as well, I think. I think that's, the comedic moments of being, again, are one of these things that need to be uh, recovered, the kind of, that, that interest in, in, in this dark comedy uh, that runs through these writers. Like the sanatorium, the coin-operated uh, operating machine that I thought was quite um, cool. Anyone else, anything else? Yeah. Okay. Else wants to speak. Don't see any other hands. Yeah. I just wanted to. to, to, to um, I, I was kind of making my way in my previous question from, from aphorism to story to information, which uh, Benjamin just seems to dislike, uh, hierarchizing and disliking the way. Elsewhere in um, Benjamin's writings, he seems to uh, fear statistics. Um, and he refers to, I think Krakow does as well, refers to statistics as uh, fascistic. Uh, I don't know if you've come across that. It always fascinated me that he thought he seems, seems to refer to statistics as fascistic. <laughs> uh, and um, it reminded me very recently, uh, to be anecdotal, uh, very recently I was listening to a, sort of a, uh, a leader in education um, talking about terrible statistics, you know, coming down the line uh, and uh, this very fatalistic. Uh, kind of vision of uh, um, the business I'm involved in, arts education, <laughs> uh, according to statistics. And it, it, it just struck me that listening to this uh, this person kind of um, assailing this whole audience full of artists, artist educators, with these statistics that was kind of trapping their future into this um, impossible fate. Um, it seemed to be completely antithetical to the role of artists, which, which seems to me to always be to produce possibility, mm -hmm. uh, no matter what the facts. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I just wondered what you, what you think of that. It seems to be that, that seems to be a lot of what you, Howard was talking about, especially anyway, that the, 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 the Benjamin storytelling versus philosophy, for example, versus Descartes or, or Kant. Um, is um, this insistence on the production of possibility at all costs, uh, in, in a way, and uh, even in the face of the facts or the statistics or reality, etc. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think it's in the Kafka essay as well that he um, you know, he has another kind of view of statistics. I mean, he takes it from uh, from Eddington, you know, uh, when he's, he's talking about. Um, the, you know, the, the experience of you know, the modern city dweller. And he kind of refers to Eddington's you know, kind of view in the, you know, the 1920s that um, you know, everything that we experience is, is just a statistical you know, um, regularity. And there's absolutely no, you know, no reason why you know, the table before us shouldn't just fly off and just constituent atoms. And you know, we, that we, we are basically you know, what we think of as solid. Uh, just statistical regularities. Now, at that point, Benjamin found that interesting because with, with Eddington, um, that statistical regularity can you know, become go into a state of exception you know, at any any particular moment. Mm -hmm. 
and he kind of imagines this happening, you know, or you know, you know, we're, you know, we're hurtling through space as these, these collections of molecules that suddenly you know, statistically disaggregate. Um, so Bengel had, you know, he, he did feel that you know, statistics could also you know, have uh, you know, a, you know, a liberatory you know, role. I think it's in the Kafkaesque way to discuss it. Anyone, anything else? Any comments, questions, provocations? Yes. So, I'm really interested by the fact that all of you, in one way or another, talked about performance, about Walter mm -hmm. Benjamin performing something, or um, the book itself, the collection itself, performing something. And you're talking about theatre and pedagogy and Walter Benjamin pedagogy. And I was um, considering the possibility of, um, I'm, I'm, I'm sure it's been considered a lot before, but I'm not aware of it. Uh, so the, the fact that um, Wolf says something, Virginia Wolf says in A Room of One's Own, when she's giving a lecture to undergraduates, she says, I can't actually teach you anything, I can't actually tell you uh, about women in fiction. What I can do is I can tell you how I thought and perform it for you and lay before you, and whatever it is that you can learn from it or take away from it is what you will learn and take away from it. And I was wondering whether you felt, while reading Benjamin's performances, Benjamin's performances, whether there is an element of him requiring you to perform some kind of pedagogic activity in response to what he's doing, whether you felt that way or not. I think so, one of the, in, in, in what he's interested in, does talk about pedagogy. It's this idea of transmissibility, um, and it comes up, for example, also in, in the way in which, therefore, pedagogy has an element of, of, um, of storytelling. To it. He always compares teachers to storytellers, um, and the key idea there isn't about the correct transmission of something, the information. Um, it's about tr about finding a form to transmit something such that someone else takes it up for themselves, which I think connects to what you're saying with, with the wolf. Um, so more important, in fact, now than, than the, the correct content, the baby increasingly in that kind of alienated experience of the big city and modernity and, and, the, and the forms in which that takes, um, is a concern with, with, with um, the transmissibility of the tradition that we're interested in. And that primarily means deforming it in a way that allows other people to take it on personally. And that's that point of the storytelling. You always add something personal when you retell the story, but you're compelled to retell the story like I was actually, we both did when we read it. Um, and, and in doing so, you add something of yourself to it. And, and for Benjamin, there's that link between what storytellers do and what, what let's say, teachers do, although it'd be cautious of that term, but um, which is not try to um, convey information correctly, but to find a way of conveying information that, that means it gets transmitted onwards because you can't put it down, because you have to do something. And that sounds like, you know, and there's a modernist impulse to that in, in the works, the things Benjamin's reading, um, which would connect, therefore, to, to, to Wolf as well, I think. That's that modernist idea that we're not going, there won't be a truth at the end of this, but we'll tell it in a way that, that maybe compels you to not be able to put this down, this idea, or something like that. It's also predicated, isn't it, on the idea of reception and listening. So you have to be receptive. You can, you know, you can find all sorts of forms and, and wonderful performances, but if everybody's sitting here just, you know, closed or looking at their, you know, screen or whatever, and you, you don't have that kind of receptive 
board. You know, he talks about it in the Proust essay, doesn't he? That every morning we wake up and we, 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 we hold the kind of fragments of a dream life in our hands and then we become very purposive very quickly and it just all, you know, it all scatters. So we, we fail to listen to ourselves almost. Our own, our own performances of fantasy are lost to us. So there's, a kind, there's something, you, I think you're absolutely right, but, that, but that there is an emphasis, isn't there, in, in, in his writing on, on, on the way on the way, not just transmissibility, but, but how you receive what is being transmitted, or whether you do in a, in a capitalist culture where you're, you're being you know, schooled to look at certain things at certain times and not think about what you're, you know, not being distracted, you know, a big thing about distraction, not being distracted. We've been distracted in the wrong way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I'm struck again having come back to the, the orality of uh, mm. Bacon's work, because um, I think that was something that was fairly kind of widespread, especially in German culture at the time. I know especially in the case of Kafka, that uh, Kafka wrote his work to be read. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, there's, a, you know, there's, a, there's a stream of Kafka interpretation which says it's pointless reading kind of Kafka you know, in, in the published versions, even in the textually sophisticated ones. I mean, you have to read the manuscripts because what, mm -hmm. he's, what he's provided is basically a series of cues for a, uh, an oral performance. You know, the, 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 mm -hmm. the castle is meant to be heard. Mm -hmm. you know, and, uh, you know, meant to be then read as something to be heard. Don't people um, say that about Finnegan's work as well? Yeah, yeah. I think it's part, it's part of a, a, a broad sense yeah. and, and there was a lot of tolerance to, to listening and um, you know, to, to producing work to be, to be read aloud and to be performed. Yeah. Yeah. Let me just add something very briefly um, with regards to this notion of performance. I mean, one of the things that we tried to emphasize in the introduction to the book um, is that and this ties back to uh, Howard's point about this being a kind of a philosophical fiction, also maybe in the vein of someone like Kleinst, right? So that the works themselves perform or stage or enact on a different kind of register, a sort of philosophical, I don't want to call it point because that's not ex exactly right, but in recasting this concept of experience, it needs to assume new forms and it performs precisely a kind of a philosophical question, issue, gesture, whatever you want to. Uh, to call it right, so that the texts themselves have a kind of a formative element almost inscribed in them, I think, or I hoped anyway. So as mm. part of the uh, editorial conceit when we were uh, throwing this, um, these texts uh, together, that this is Benjamin, you know, the critic, the philosopher, the Marxist, the thinker of technology or pedagogy or whatever, trying to somehow stage, if you like, mm. some of these concerns in a different uh, way, less discursive. Uh, less academic or, or whatever kind of and not that there aren't other texts that, that do this you know the autobiographical vignettes and so on but um, <coughs> nonetheless it struck me that there's something peculiar you know about the the, the, the four stories the cactus hedge or, or any of the others that have come up today yeah i think we have time for one more yeah perhaps two more it's five seven past um, maybe one more? Yeah. Any last thoughts, questions? Praises. Praises. <laughs> yeah. Honour. Right received. Did you do anything different with radio? I mean, you, you mentioned radio. Did you come to radio and take that in a, in a different kind of way? Um, yeah, I mean, he certainly worked within the, the experimental culture and, and thought a lot about how um, how to perform mainly this, this work for children, pedagogical 
work, um, and he also thought of other forms of kind of um, you know, li listening plays and using sound effects. And you know, he was encouraged in that by a very liberal culture in, in the 20s um, in Germany. So, I mean, definitely, and I mean, those things are, are collected in that, that other marvellous the so collection of Radio Benjamin. But obviously, what we don't have of that is him performing them. We only have the scripts, and, I, and in a sense, that's, I mean, it's brilliant to have those, but there's, um, yeah, one loses the sense of how he would have actually delivered. delivered that would be fine. German Public Radio did a CD of a voice actor reading some of them a few years ago. Mm. Or Benjamin for Kinder, you can download it freely on the internet. It's not Benjamin speaking for what it's worth, but uh, <laughs> yeah. they're, they're quite interesting in their own way. Kaspar Hauser and all kinds of mm. stories, right? Yeah. Strong narrative yeah. component and a strong pedagogical conceit, I think. Mm. They were intended for children, most of them, that's the, the thing of the. Although, yeah. Although even, I mean, there's, there are also these sort of plays for adults like how to request a pay rise and things like that. <laughs> it's right, yeah. sort of staging these kind of conversations that you might have. I mean, it comes out in the uh, editorial remarks to some of the later volumes of the, of the collected writings in, in German that there are quite a few texts that might have made it into the collection had they survived that have in fact been lost. Right? And there's all manner of, 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 of titles and so on that are recorded in, in various diaries and so on that, that never made it. I mean, we opened the introduction by acknowledging a plan that he had for a detective novel. I mean, he was quite fascinated, I think, by this kind of copy. Didn't he write? I think he did under a pen name. Did he? Because it's my understanding that it didn't survive. I think there's evidence that he was planning it. Ah, and then there are scraps. Like and, uh, that he had. Okay. Yeah, I mean, he may have, but to my knowledge, it doesn't. He did, yeah. Indeed. But maybe that's right, maybe they'll still turn up in some studio. <laughs> okay, well, I guess uh, we're going to be kicked out of here shortly. Yeah. Uh, thanks to everyone. Thank if you, you have to see the good girls,